Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. You know where to find me at An Immigrant's Life, Instagram and Facebook. An Immigrant's Life at Yahoo.com is the email. If you want to reach out, talk about things, or if you want to be a guest on a podcast, please don't hesitate to send us a message. Of course, thank you for being here. I am grateful you are listening to this podcast. May you be an OG listener or a newbie. I want to let you know that you are welcome here. Since we have a great episode this week, why don't we just go ahead and talk about it? Our commendable guest this week doesn't just lay down and take it. She fights for her right and her community's right. This episode is full of heartaches, hope, and some sensitive topics. So please listen at your own discretion. I know you are excited to listen, so let's not waste more time. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is a photographer and a visual storyteller. She takes photographs like Diane Arbus, and like her name, she's a gift of God for the oppressed and the marginalized. Everyone, please welcome Olga Fedorova. Right off the bat, I'm stunned to be compared to Diane Arbus. I'm blushing. I'm sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you like that. I did some research. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love photography too. I know some of them, but, but hey, listen, I love your photographs. I do. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. It took me like a long time to get to uh, be brave enough to put it out there and claim that I'm a photographer. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Because, you know, there is a lot of people there that just take some five pictures and then put on their Instagram as a photographer. Oh, well, hey, no shade. I mean, I think uh, I think self-confidence is great. <laughs> I wish I had more of it. <laughs> I love that. But, you know, confidence and delusion, they're kind of like really close by each other. You know what I mean? That's true. It's true. It's a thin line. Anyways, I want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really like your podcast. Oh, thank you. I really do appreciate it. When you told me that, I'm like, do you really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm I'm 100% honest. Like, I... I love like I listened kind of uh, I kind of benched on the podcast when I had a chance and mm. um, yeah I, I I realized that I, pretty much all of my friends are immigrants like doesn't matter where they're from I'm much likely to relate to an immigrant like from across the world mm. than I am to someone who never experienced immigration and like former friendship with them yeah I guess we have that some same thing in common that like, you know, like we talk on offline that like the darkness. Yes, the experience of struggling and having to start over in a new place and not belonging and mm -hmm. all these things. Yes. 
Exactly. Hey, before we get into the the darkness and whatever else, please tell the immigrant nation where they can reach you or if you want to promote anything, go ahead. So, uh, you can reach me on IG, uh, probably an email, but I think maybe uh, our wonderful host will share my IG with everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to take this moment to try to recruit more subjects or stories that people want to be told. And uh, I am in particular uh, working on a project about third culture immigrants from uh, former Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, so if that is you, get in touch and we'll talk. So do they have to be third culture? Uh, they don't have to be. Uh, I'll talk to, you know, I'll talk to anyone and see mm. whether they, you know, whether they fit into the project and whether they could benefit uh, from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do they have to be in New York? No, they don't have to be in New York. Well, perfect. Then I'll hook you up with some people. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, definitely. I can think of a lot of them. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, I avoided the Russian-speaking community. It's very difficult to like talk about this community, like former Soviet Union, Russian-speaking. And like Russia became a lingua franca because of colonialism. Hmm. Um, and... Obviously, the Russian Empire and Soviet Union are just colonialist states that instead of expanding across the sea, across the ocean, expanded uh, because of how they're geographically located sort of outward Mm. throughout the two continents. Um, But I avoided this community because I felt like I didn't want to be pigeonholed. and I don't want to be forced to make work about other people from Eastern Europe or from former Soviet Union or just because I speak Russian because I really feel like um, I really feel like my community, like someone from Africa is also my community. Mm. I feel like if we continue to define community strictly by ethnic or racial uh, lines that's we're, we're never going to move past our current situation but but recently i kind of figured out that the the angle and something i do have in common with people who are third culture um who are like neither here nor there mm-hmm. so you, culturally you're going home in a way yes hmm. I'm happy. I'm glad for you. Thank you. I feel like almost all immigrants goes through that. You know, when we immigrate, we try to like, oh, I'm Filipino. I was Filipino. I don't want to be Filipino anymore. I just want to be Canadian or whatever else, you know. Was it shame-based for you or something else? Um, It was mostly me, in a way, being contrarian Mm. (laughs) and also in a way... Um, ideological because I'm very much um, I believe in cosmopolitanism and um, I I believe in like common humanity so recently interestingly with identity politics it's been that 
like even progressive politics is very much based on seeking um authenticity in like within ethnic identities or you know like let's say sexual identities um and i i just don't i just don't think that i have more in common with someone from eastern europe or from russia from ukraine simply by the virtue of them being from the same geographical location as me I mean, how granular, how granular are we going to get here, right? It's like, well, we have to be from the same, we have to be from the same neighborhood or otherwise it's just not, yeah. <laughs> just not good enough. <laughs> yeah, you're so correct. So let's get back to you a little bit about your immigration story. You were born in Ukraine? Yes. And you moved to the U.S. as a teenager. Why did you guys move? What was the reason? There were multiple reasons, but there was a lot of corruption. Um, and my parents, like, they're both from, let's say, the educated classes, but because of, economically, because of what happened after the fall of Soviet Union, um, we were kind of plunged into poverty where, like, we still had a very nice apartment, but then my mom, my mom was a music teacher who worked uh, at a government school and the government just wasn't paying first like any money whatsoever, just like no money to pay the salary. <laughs> and then, right. And people would, um, it would get really funny um, in retrospect where people would get paid with, so like money as currency, as a token of exchange became completely devalued. People lost all their savings. Um, people who worked all their lives to, you know, they were, they were counting on like retirement pay and pension and things like that. All of that just disappeared overnight. And so people would get paid in whatever they were making at work. Like people were making, uh, they were working at a factory that produces toilets. They would get paid their salary in toilets and then it would have to go to the market and try to exchange it for like meat, you know. Uh, and then my mom, she was making music. She was, so she wasn't get, getting paid in anything. <laughs> Um, so then, and, and my, my parents noticed that I was also into things that would mean that I don't get paid in anything, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I was not into anything, uh, anything lucrative. Um, so they were like, okay, we have to move. We have to move out from Ukraine. <laughs> That's funny. Do you have siblings? No. Oh, solo hija. Yes. Hmm. So from Ukraine, where did you guys land in the U.S.? In JFK. I have a story about that. Tell us. I love stories. <laughs> so we were told that we should bring various. So we, we were allowed a certain like allotment of uh, luggage, like a certain weight per person. Hmm. And it was me, my dad, my grandmother, and me. Counted myself twice. Very important. Um <laughs> And so we were told to bring, for some reason, bedding. Um, bedding is very expensive in the U.S., but so we were bedding and we brought brooms. So imagine us walking through JFK, carrying brooms, like broomsticks made out of like twigs. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Who I really told don't... you this information? My... 
my aunt, my uh, dad's sister, who was already living in the United States. I don't know mm. what the fuck she was thinking. So we're walking from JFK, and I, a teenager, I'm like burning with such shame. <laughs> I, I don't know how to get away from my parents. How old were you then? I was 15. Okay, okay. Oh, my God. And I overhear, and then as we were walking down the corridor in JFK, I overhear this little girl ask her dad, who are these people in English? And he says, shh, they're very poor people. (laughs) (laughs) Then, you know, five minutes of me blending in JFK, that was the first reaction my family elicited. And I was just not into that. (laughs) You should have said to the little girl, like, hey, back home, this broom, it could be like a bar of gold. You know, I think I think your aunt wanted broom. Yes, she did actually. It was a ploy for you to bring brooms. Yes. Anyways, <laughs> did you speak English by then, or? I spoke a little. I spoke much better German, but German. How? Yes, uh, I went to a school with spe- like a specialized German school. Um, in Ukraine, school number 28 in Lviv. <laughs> That's the name of the school, number yes. 28? Yes. It Are was like, all the school numbered, like number one, number two? Uh, yes, they're numbered. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's like some Soviet, like very uh, system systematic way of, I don't know, organizing schools. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That is so weird. Yeah, I mean, I guess they cannot name it like, I don't know, Vladimir Lenin school because that, you know, communist, right? Yeah, not anymore. But it was a very good school. Like if you graduated from it, you were right away, you were like qualified as a German translator, interpreter. Really? Do you yes. still speak German? A little bit. And this can have a few birthday for guessing. Hey, that's good enough. I don't know what you said, but that's good enough I for me. I said a little, but I forgot a lot of words. <laughs> okay. Did your parents plan that for you to go to that school? Yes, because my parents, my dad lived in Germany for a long time. Hmm. So much so that I like, I had to meet him again when I was like five or six years old. I completely forgot him. Um, really? Yeah. Like he went there to... Uh, they called it uh, Gastarbeiter, so like guest worker. Mm. Uh, so a lot of people from former Soviet Union, men especially, they would go to Germany and they would look, work kind of like mm, manual jobs. Um, so my dad did that to like help out the family and I didn't see him for a really long time. Wow. Let's talk about uh, you growing up in New York. You stayed in New York, I'm assuming? Uh, mostly yes okay so you grew up in new york how was your life in new york um so i initially lived in uh brooklyn uh, and kind of russian neighborhood of bensonhurst which i very much disliked um it's like very insular and Hmm. then very early on, I discovered the East Village and East Village and St. Mark's were still kind of punk back then. Mm. So, and very stereotypically, I did ballet. Uh, very <laughs> did professional. Yes. Yes. Professionally? 
yes, like I, I went to school of American Ballet on a scholarship. So I used to go to Lincoln Center and the school is right, right there. And I would, but at the same time, I was like really punk and I would wear like torn fishnets and I got all these piercings. Mm. Uh, and I had like, you know, a pretty crazy hairstyle. So that was like, that did not fly. Yeah, because the other ballet students, like I was very <laughs> different from them. Mm. Um, and yeah, I I fell in love with New York. Like that's like the only the only entity I'm patriotic patriotic about. Like I dislike patriotism very much, but like mm. I love New York so much. Um, and yeah, I I grew up. Uh, in this village I was like going to all the shows um, hanging out with like kind of squat kids in uh, Alphabet City and uh, St. Mark's um, and then I went to college and I was like a big activist and I was like studying philosophy and uh, I was in Occupy Wall Street were you? Yes, and I got arrested a bunch of times for that. <laughs> and all the while, like, it's so funny. I wanted to... Actually, I was drawn to photography and film. But I was so intimidated because growing up, um, we never had... I never had a camera. Mm. I didn't even... Like, when I was... Yeah, I never had a camera. And I never even had, like a Walkman because my family was so poor. Like we had a lot of books. We had just like thousands of books in the apartment and I would read all of them, but we didn't have like modern technology, like <laughs> a video player, you know, we just couldn't afford it. And mm. I didn't like not, you know, or a computer. So like a camera, I felt like, oh my God, it's so late for me to learn how to use a camera. And I was 17 years old and I thought it's so late for me, which is so mm. funny. Um, so yeah, I ended up, um, becoming an interpreter. <laughs> interpreter. Which language did you start? I mean, I guess, uh, Russian? Japanese. Oh, oh, Japanese. Yes. What kind of gig do you get for interpreting for uh, Japanese? Um, various, but I worked in... Oh, okay. So I used to subtitle uh, Japanese movies, like really bad, like B horror or even kind of like erotic, like pink, like pink films. <laughs> um, like not like something major that you would see in a the movie theater. Mm. They probably hire someone much more famous for a lot of money to do that. But like they kind of kind of pretty shabby stuff on like Amazon Prime or whatever. I would so I would write subtitles for that um, for a long time, and then I ended up working for an art gallery. Mm. Um, but a lot of like I realized that most Japanese interpreting and translation jobs are for business and for like Japanese factories in like Kentucky. And I have zero interest <laughs> in interpreting. Japanese businessmen in, in Kentucky. <laughs> that is not romantic. <laughs> Why did you decide Japanese, by the way? It was just, it's like the knowledge gap. 
like the most different thing like there's nothing in common in terms like linguistically hmm. uh was any european language so the less i knew about it the more there was more to learn hmm. uh, and by the same time it was accessible like classes were accessible because i am just as interested in uh you know maybe wolof language in africa or something like that but there are no classes in my college so mm. i wouldn't be able to learn it necessarily um but and i couldn't like i tried learning mandarin mm. for a little bit and i realized that i will never ever master the pronunciation <laughs> so i just gave up it's too difficult <laughs> how disappointed were your parents when you said you're going to learn uh, japanese my parents you know my parents were so used to to disappointments being my parents <laughs> that they were like oh another one bites the dust <laughs> or we bite the, we bite the dust once again or something like that <laughs> but it seems like they're very liberal people that they allow you to learn and grow whatever you want to do not like the typical you know eastern european or you know russian people they're like no you have to be this uh i know they just they just realized i'm good for nothing at some point and they were like uh just, <laughs> they just quit this is our only daughter we just have to give up and let her do the stupid things that she does <laughs> think i didn't sell you for marriage no one was buying <laughs> You're buying and no one's selling. <laughs> you told me that uh, prior to turning to 30, you never touch a camera. What made you finally decide, you know what? I think it's time. Like a combination of factors. My dad passed away very suddenly. Hmm, sorry to hear that. Um, it just reminded me that Time is uh, time is of essence. It's very limited. There's an expiration date for all of us, mm -hmm. and it was like a big, big wake up call that I need to do the things that I dream about now. I uh, cannot delay any longer. And I also met my husband, who's a photographer, mm. and he is super supportive and encouraging so he let me use all of his gear even though i drive me crazy because i'm very disorganized <laughs> and uh, i always put the camera too close to the edge of the table or something oh, that would <laughs> drive me nuts too uh but yeah eventually i i think i learned to use it <laughs> mm -hmm. did you buy your own camera eventually or I you did. Still, hmm. which one did you buy first um, so I use a Sony Alpha uh, A7 III, hmm. and then my husband and I share the lenses. Hmm. A lot of people have been using Sony. I have a Canon, um, a Rebel, it's nothing special, but but I'm like, obviously, I don't know anything about photography or photographs, but I'm like, you know what, Canon's like, you know, the Ferrari or the Honda Civic of the of cameras, so I'm going to go with that. Um, So Sony is like, it's like the best, it's like the best the money can buy. Hmm. Uh, if you're in a somewhat limited budget, because it takes 
put very decent photos. It takes very decent video. It's it's not the best, like for example, for for journalists. Uh, I know it's not the best because it's not the most like sturdy. Like if you if you meet people who uh, they go and they take photos in a desert or in a war zone, mm-hmm. they tend to use uh, other types of cameras. And then I, I heard that like the latest camera that's on your release that's like very, very expensive. It's like better built, mm-hmm. but I, I definitely cannot afford that. <laughs> Not even <laughs> in my dreams. <laughs> so what were your subjects when you start taking photographs? So I started by taking street photos because it's, you know, it's accessible just to train myself. And um, so my husband is from Thailand. Mm. And so my husband and I, I had to apply for a green card for my husband. And when you get a green card through marriage, you're supposed to prove to the U.S. government that it's not a marriage scam. And it's all very funny. And me being a contrarian, I decided to turn it into an art or photography project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, well, they want to see, they want to see proof. I will give them so much proof. They will, they will want to stab themselves in the eyes. <laughs> so I started, like my husband and I, or we're still working on this project together, kind of like documenting ourselves, but you know, both from like a humorous, like from different angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we filed a freedom of information request to get all of our documents back from the government and all our pictures that they, that they're storing somewhere. And we got all that back and probably make a book. So that I started doing that. So like a lot of like, portraiture, self-portraiture. Um, I used to put the camera on the ceiling. We used to live in like a, in a really, really tiny room in Jackson Heights, Queens. Mm-hmm. Like that, it was only big enough for a mattress. And yes, pretty much like a mattress and uh, like a rack of clothes and a bookshelf. So I, I put the camera on the like under the ceiling, I mounted it and I would just leave it up there for extended periods of time and then like see what I got. Like, yeah. So I started with that and then gradually I moved on to photojournalism and I started getting photojournalism assignments. Mm. You said that you're a freelance news photographer. How does that work? So I work for... um, Alan Live News, which is a website where you go to a news event and you within one hour you have to upload your photos and then every time someone downloads them, the photos, you get a certain percentage, not a very high percentage, I must say, of the proceeds. And then I also uh, get some assignments from uh, small newspapers mm. and hopefully New York Times are you listening I will get assignments from bigger <laughs> newspapers too <laughs> soon 
What makes a photograph makes it to the Wall Street Journal or the New Yorker and compared to, I don't know, just like a small photography? Is it the art or is it the, just the connection between people? It's definitely both. Mm. It's definitely both. Um, like I lack connections very badly because I didn't go the traditional route. I didn't mm. go to photography school or you know, art school. So I barely know anyone. I just started getting to know some people uh, in like the New York photographer, photojournalist community hmm. recently. And they've been very nice to me, very welcoming and accepting. Um, but yeah, it's very difficult um, to, to, to get on that assignment, assignment track or whatever. Mm -hmm. to to be seen yeah you're right i see some of your work is ar around the pro-abortion and anti-abortion clinic situation do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah sure why do you think it's imperative for women to have access to abortion uh first of all because abortion is healthcare, and mm. abortion will be happening regardless of whether it is uh what regardless of its legality uh it just won't be safe uh, and also abortion is included in the umbrella of human rights which means that enjoyment full enjoyment of other human rights is impossible without full access to abortion care um, because the implication of the implications of lack of access to safe and legal abortions for uh, people who are capable of pregnancies are uh, absolutely tragic. We know what happens when abortion is illegal. You can look at uh, countries that are currently uh, have these kind of restrictive. Uh, abortion laws like El Salvador, and it's already happening here. And it is unequally affecting uh, women, uh, people who are capable of being pregnant based on race and class. So people of color and poor people are affected so much more than people of means who will always be able to access safe abortion. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that you can turn over a law like Roe versus Wade. Like, what what happened? I mean, this is a very long conversation, but uh, it's not a law. Of course, oh. law also can be law also can be nullified. But U.S. has precedent law, so hmm. Roe versus Wade does a Supreme Court case, right? Supreme Court interprets laws. Uh, Abortion, access to abortion should have been codified, insured by law, uh, very, very decades ago, but it never happened. Hmm. Um, of course, if the Equal Rights Amendment had been passed, this would never have happened. Uh, but it wasn't passed because wonderful anti, and I, I, I put that in quotation marks, wonderful anti-feminist activists like Phyllis Schlafy effectively killed the uh, Equal Rights Amendment. Um, what happened? What happened is that 
the very vocal and fringe and powerful minority in the United States that is religiously and ideologically motivated has, through a series of strategic moves, imposed its will on the majority. The absolute majority of U.S. population do not agree with abortion law, with access to abortion being restricted. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunate. In your opinion, do you think there's a timeline on when it is ethically acceptable to terminate a pregnancy? I... So nobody terminates a wanted pregnancy for no reason. Hmm. Nobody waits a terminated pregnancy until viability. People who have an unplanned pregnancy that they want to terminate, terminate immediately. That is why over 90% of all abortions happen in the first trimester. Hmm. And usually even as soon as possible, right? I had an abortion and I terminated as soon as I found out. So probably at third or fourth week of gestation. Abortions that do happen later on, they all happen for medical reasons. And it is absolutely not up to anyone to, other than a healthcare provider, to meddle with that process. Moreover, uh, late-term abortions, a late-term abortion is a surgical procedure that takes multiple days. You cannot get a referral to a surgical procedure in the United States if it is not medically indicated. You cannot go to a doctor and say, doctor, I would like to have my limb removed. Right. It is if it's not medically indicated, doctor will not do it. You will not receive a referral to a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, so every single late-term abortion in United States and probably elsewhere is a gut-wrenching situation where a wanted pregnancy turned out mm-hmm. to be incompatible with health and uh, life of the mother or to be non-viable, 100%. Mm-hmm. Well said. So now, majority of the state, there's no abortion at all? I don't remember the numbers, whether it's majority, um, but it's it's almost about half. I, I, I don't quote me on this, I don't, but it's, it's multiple states, obviously. Hmm. You mentioned that you have a, a experience terminating a pregnancy. Did you feel guilty after or you just just no. say, hey, this needs to get done? No, why would I feel guilty? Well, you know, some people would say it's life. But, but it's not life. It's not alive. Not every possible DNA combination needs to be actualized into existence. Most possible DNA combinations are never born. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you're saying that's an old way of thinking? It's just uh, an unscientific 
illogical way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, I ask that because I do know some women that are um, that have done um, abortion. And some of them, they're pretty much like you, like, it needs to get done, this is what needs to happen. And then some of them are like, they feel bad about it. We don't know whether... So we don't know whether they that guilt is sort of organic or it's something social because certainly many organizations, many people, uh, certainly the church, the Catholic church, they want to tell people and they do, they do tell people to feel bad about abortions. Another thing is that, is that I did not, this was an 100% accidental and unwanted pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Now, some people get abortion because they would like to perhaps keep it. But in the United States, they do not have the means because of United, because of like the lack of social net in the United States, they do not have the means to, uh, to economically sustain themselves and this pregnancy and the resulting child and they know that they will be trapped in a cycle of poverty mm. so so perhaps it would be it would be so great if all those people could devote tens of millions probably hundreds of millions of dollars to restricting women's access to abortion if instead they took that money and and took that power and enabled uh birthing people in united states people who want to have families but who feel that they are they cannot afford to have families to be able to afford them like in sweden um my my sister-in-law lives in sweden she got fully paid one year uh parental leave Mm. and then her husband got one year parental leave because actually they're not married. They're just uh, they don't need to, they don't need to be they don't need to be married because Sweden is civilized, um, <laughs> right? So perhaps if we had something like that, that would really be pro life, yeah. more so than as restricting abortion care. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm from Canada. We have socialized healthcare. I saw some of your work about um, homeless people, but in the caption you say unhoused and i heard this term before unhoused where's that coming from where's that unhoused term coming from i'm not exactly sure in the origins but it's kind of the term term du jour for you can hmm. for you <laughs> for you Quebecians, uh, um that is now acceptable more more acceptable than uh, homeless like homeless being sort of pejorative, right? Like less, right? As if you're less for not having a house from a home. Um, I but, wonder if the homeless people says that. They mostly do not. You know, they. I feel like if, if you are in that situation, you care less about the nomenclature of mm-hmm. the situation. Um, but I try to... I, I, I try to, if there is a potential that it will offend someone, it's like very little effort on my part to 
little very little efforts done on my part to avoid that potential embarrassment or offense to someone. So mm. I just I just stick to that more accepted term. Um, but I think I also think that like talk is cheap, right? So um, I I don't like to bicker over like acceptable mm. kind of so so called PC terms. Mm. Um, and the, the term political correctness in general, political correctness is for people who have really bad and unacceptable thoughts. Mm. And and then PC language uh, exists to help those people express themselves, to like give them like kind of guidelines of what not to say. I feel like if you don't have those thoughts to begin with, you naturally don't say these like terribly offensive things. Like you don't need to think about, well, what's PC and what's not PC. You just don't have the desire to say those terrible things, you know? Yeah. But if you were, you know, raised or grew up in a certain area or a certain uh, era, that's the term that was, I guess, acceptable back then. So that's the word you're going to use. And not, not making Perhaps, it right. Yes. But, yes. you know, the thing is like, I don't mind using the word unhouse, to be honest. I, I don't care, right? But who's decided? Are this the like the community or committee of the ho- homeless people or the unhoused people? No, it's just like people the that this thoroughly assembled and <laughs> yeah, you know, like decided. <laughs> oh, that's the word that we're gonna use now. Get out of here, bro. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just saw it. Uh, I kind of saw and heard it used among activists hmm. who provide very uh, very concrete assistance and work on behalf um, of these unhoused or homeless, if you will, populations, mm-hmm. like helping them move their belongings when uh, there is a sweep, uh, collecting donations and providing them with necessities, like the mutual aid organizations. Mm-hmm. And so I take guidance from these wonderful activists. Yeah, of course, those heroes. Yeah. Like you said, talk is cheap. People say this, people say that, but these are the ones that are, they're the boots on the ground. They're the one who make the difference. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like I question the value of what I do as a photographer and a filmmaker every single day and like is there any value in what I do I mean I should I could just put on a pair of gloves and um, help these people and I'm not saying that I don't right I feel like there is a balance mm-hmm. um, but I but I also hope that there is some value uh, in documenting because the kind of information warfare and misinformation and the dehumanization of entire groups it is being done so we need to we need to present an alternative point of view and also i think there's a kind of failure of imagination also um where we as humans, like our, our lifespan, right, is so limited and the things that we're exposed to are limited. Mm-hmm. And we think that 
the way it is now is the best. Maybe this is the best way it can be. Maybe this is the best we can hope for. Maybe mm. this is the only way to do things. But it's not because elsewhere, things are being done differently. And things were different, you know, 20, 40 years ago, and things have changed. So I think it's it's important to remind ourselves and others of this potential for change, mm. for the better and for the worse. Amen. Hey, social healthcare is amazing. <laughs> right on. And uh, medical debt being number one reason for number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is mm. it is a crime. It is an absolute crime. Why do you think it doesn't happen in the States? Because, because there are moneyed interests that mm -hmm. have a stake, a very large and costly stake in, um, so like the insurance companies, right? Um, and other for-profit entities. So like there's this really good book called um, Spheres of Influence by Michael Walter that points out that there are areas of human activity where we accept that money is not an appropriate uh token of exchange for example we do not sell political office hmm. uh, i mean don't we <laughs> but in theory we don't so hmm. we we recognize that you shouldn't be able to buy a position in the government right so certain things should not be left up to the market hmm. and healthcare is one of them however in the united states there is my interest that um are doing their best and in a lobby like the fact that lobby lobbying exists and like special interest group exists, that's ridiculous it is it oh my god i mean how crazy is that that is corrupt that it is like legalized corruption yeah absolutely legalized corruption um and so these um these businesses right these for-profit entities they have convinced people in the united states that that socialized healthcare is socialism and slavery and freedom means freedom to die of preventable illness and go bankrupt uh this is this is information warfare and this is kind of like this is it's it's hegemony it's hegemony you know it's like domination that you don't even see it's like it's the way fish don't realize they're in water mm. it's crazy because all you guys have to look is look towards the border up to the north because we have it listen it's not perfect but hey it's it works but but aren't you Aren't you enslaved by your socialized <laughs> medicine? I mean, I don't know what to say to you. I <laughs> something, know, something dude. socialism. <laughs> I, I know also, it they takes, took our I, jobs. I know it takes a lot of money from my my uh, my paycheck. I get it, but when I see like people that are in need, like yeah, they need that. You know, like I got something. I'll give some something to you guys. The military takes a lot of money from my paycheck, my very small paycheck, and I don't want. I would much rather pay for socialist medicine than 
fucking socialized military industrial complex. Nobody asked me. I know. Like going back to what you said earlier about your sister-in-law or that he, she took like a year paid, uh, um, what do you call this, uh, maternity leave. We have that too here. I think it's a year and a half. Wow. Over here. But it's not 100%. It goes down. Like, I think it's six months, 100. Don't quote me on this. It's like six months, 100, and it goes down, it goes down. But it's still paid. You know what I mean? In the US, I think it's like one week, I guess. Huh? So, in uh, bastions of socialism, once again, <laughs> like New York and California, it is, I think it's like three months at 60% or 65% of paycheck. <laughs> And that is, I mean, that is, um, that is like pretty new mm. development, like maybe several years old. Mm-hmm. And it is very much an exception to the rule in the majority of the states. It's crazy. Interestingly, in the states uh, that have the most restrictive abortion laws now, mm. they have the worst maternal and infant mortality in the United States, and they have the least social net for new mothers and infants. It's, it's That's insane. That's how pro-life they are. It's so insane. I remember I met this guy. He's a, he's an American. He was visiting, and we're at lunch, and we're just talking, and then we healthcare come up. And it's like, I don't understand why you guys healthcare. You know, it's not actually free because you're paying for it. And and I'm like, yeah, we're paying, we're putting all our money in a basket so we can, if somebody needs it, somebody can use it, you know? And he's, and he was like, well, it's my money. Why are you taking my money? I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, you know what, dude? I'm not talking to you. The thing people don't realize is that everyone will get sick. Mm. Every single one um, because aging affects every single cell literally of one's body and everything breaks down mm-hmm. so a long enough timeline the survival rate for everyone zero <laughs> and crazy. before that before that it's not like very few people are lucky enough to die instantaneously mm. before that you will need uh, long-term care. Mm-hmm. And so many people in the United States, not only they go bankrupt, they're, they lose housing. Mm-hmm. They lose, um, they lose like the, the, the Medicare like repossesses their house or the long-term facility that they're in ends up taking their house. So eventually you do pay, but also like because of the way insurance companies in the United States are set up, like your doctor could could um, feel that a certain test or certain procedure is indicated for you. But insurance company, the first thing they do is they deny it. The insurance company takes it upon itself to to review the doctor's uh, direct directions and say, well, we don't want to pay for this. Try again. And so this way, so much time is lost. And moreover, as a, as a medical interpreter, I can tell you that the way this works is like, let's say somebody needs uh, 
the doctor says, well, you really need uh, a PET scan, but that's like the most expensive scan. So first, I need to send you to an x-ray. Now, x-ray is useless in this situation, but we have to go in the direction of uh, increasing price. Mm. So you, you're you getting, like, this way, actually, healthcare costs more because people are getting all these unnecessary interventions or all these unnecessary tests just because, well, the insurance company works this way. Mm. Uh, it is ass backwards. <laughs> By the way, let me just say that all those tests that you said, that's free here. <laughs> like I said, socialism. Ew. <laughs> Let's talk about your projects, the trans-Latinx sex workers in Jackson Heights and the third culture, which we talk about a little bit. But we're gonna, let's talk about the trans-Latinx uh, sex workers. What is this project about and what made you think of this? So um, I had an assignment to shoot uh, a trans Latin liberation march here in Jackson Heights where uh, there's a very large population of, so this is a very, this is the most diverse community. There was a, the most diverse neighborhood in the world uh, by some accounts. Mm. Uh, there's a very large Latin population and um, a lot of new uh, immigrants from uh the south part of the Turtle Island. Um, so, and a lot of uh, people who seek asylum in the States, they seek asylum because they're trans, because they're subjected to violence and discrimination where they're from. Um, even though obviously in pre-Columbian and pre-Hispanic uh, era, th this was accepted, right? Like, the three gender people or, you know, uh, third gender people were accepted. Mm. So there are a lot of um, trans Latin people uh, in this community. And um, however, once they moved to the United States, they realized that maybe, although it's not the same, not the same level of uh, threat that they were experiencing in uh, their country of origin, they are still experiencing workplace discrimination. People don't want to hire them. Uh, now it's also a language barrier. So they may not speak much English yet. Hmm. And so they have to, uh, they only have an option of sex work. And performing sex work, which is uh, illegal, still legal in the United States, as they're waiting for their for their asylum, they're uh, they're facing a threat of arrest, persecution, and so they might get deported. Uh, they 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 could face deportation if they do get arrested. So hmm. this is a very this is a very serious issue. So there are several like really wonderful organizations like um, Make the Road New York. Uh, and others that advocate on behalf of trans Latin people um, who try to decriminalize sex work uh, and pass uh, working while trans laws to to um, to protect trans people from discrimination. And so I'm 
just just embarking and trying to build ties in that community to document uh, this struggle that trans lives and people are facing right now. Very interesting, man. I hope that um, they will let me in, even though I'm from outside of their community. Mm. Um, but again, what is community? I, I I think these people are my community. You know. Yeah. I mean, if you show good faith, they'll see it, right? They they'll start respecting you and trusting you, and they'll let you in. Uh, where where is the documentary? And are you? Do you have videos now? Uh, what's where? Where is the stage? So this one is in the very beginning stages. Mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of like in the research stages of this one. Okay. Um, I'm still like trying to. That's you know that's one of like that's one of the kind of hard parts of. Um, photojournalism because it is relatively easy to learn to take a picture but this like commitment and labor that it takes to get access hmm. that's like very much a part of it how about your third culture documentary what's the goal of the documentary so i think uh people from former soviet union and people from um Eastern Europe, they're in a strange place um, in the United States. Um, it's 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 difficult to figure out how to fit how to fit into the United States like racial uh, understanding of the world and understanding of itself. Um, you know, whiteness isn't real. Obviously, there is no such thing as white people. White people invented whiteness <laughs> to exclude everyone else, right? Um, but but it has become reified through history and uh, the systems that have been built to benefit whiteness in the United States. Hmm. So whether you want it or not, once you moved to United States, you somehow, one way or another, are classified according to that system. And I think, um, on one hand, there is a very large, I think there is a very large problem in the Russian-speaking community. For me, it is a problem of, mm. let's say, social conservatism, racism, um there is a very large overlap of like being anti anti-vaccine and covid denying and uh all these things that i have observed in it is specifically now i'm talking about the russian community so at the same time there is a segment of the former Soviet Union community, most of the people who they grew up here or they were born here, who they don't quite, you know, they're, they're still immigrants or they're children of immigrants and their third culture, they, they fit in either, they don't completely fit into United States and they have a different experience from people who 
you know, whose parents were born here. Hmm. And obviously, they had a completely different experience from people who whose parents never moved from from the Soviet Union. So from, from, from Soviet Union. Um, and I would like to tell their stories. I would like to meet them. Um, so the way I envision this project is kind of a multimedia project um, that's portraiture based, but I also want to interview people and have them like write uh, write about their experiences um, and write something that they want others to understand about people from uh, our culture. And it's strange because there is no there is no unified like former Soviet. I mean, it's 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 so large, right? It, mm. it includes Central Asia. It includes so many places. Um, but in a way, also like the Russian language has this influence through colonialism on all these places where it clearly, frankly, has no business being, right? Um, and at the same time, I want to present like a counter narrative because um, I hate hearing Putin talk about like the Russian world, which is like this Russian language world that is idealized that he probably imagines as kind of also kind of white uh, in his own way. Uh, I just I just hate it. I hate the Russian language being used as an excuse for anything that's being done right now. Mm. Uh, I think now I'm just ranting. So you're going to, you like your work is cut out for you editing. I'm so sorry. You're going to be like, what the fuck was this person talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Hey, you're here to talk, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I completely understand. You know, it, it's close to your heart. God forbid someone attacks the Philippines. I probably would feel the same thing. But I'm really excited for this documentary that you're saying. And like I said uh, earlier that, yeah, I'll hook you up with some, uh, some of my people, my community. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Um, yeah. Because, like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't find an approach. Um, and I felt kind of unmoored, like, because I've been... You know, I, I feel uneasy sometimes also, like, because I feel like I'm maybe intruding on other people's communities where I am unwelcome or... But at the same time, I really do feel more in common uh, with, for example, my, my trans-Latin neighbors. And so being in the United States, I'm like, okay, so, like, what is my community here by these... First of all, I feel like working class or anyone who struggles is a part of my community. Mm. Um, but also, I felt like, okay, so who am I allowed to photograph? Am I only allowed to photograph like in Brighton Beach? But I don't feel, you know, I, I, I it doesn't speak to me. Why I don't do you know feel what that? Is, you know, there's a 
lot of like conversation about authenticity and kind of uh, exploitation in photojournalism, right? Because of like the history of white people going to other communities. Uh, that's like most of history of photography, you know, white people going to other communities and taking advantage of them. Hmm. Um, and I don't want to perpetuate them. I don't want to perpetuate that. Um, so I, I like, for example, Black Lives Matter. I did not take any photos during Black Lives Matter protests for, for like, for years. I didn't take, like, I would participate, but I felt like, okay, I'm not going to take any photos here. Hmm. Um, and in retrospect, I feel like maybe that was not the, that was not the right decision. I should have, because this is a historic moment and there was also, but I, I really was like struggling within myself as to what I should and should not photograph as a person who in the United States is classified as white, who does enjoy these privileges of, so I, I didn't know again, again, I didn't know how, how granular I should get, but, uh, that left me with like a very limited, um, very limited, let's say, community to photograph. And I didn't know how I should photograph, you know, let's say people who are unequivocally from my community, right? Like let's say Eastern Europeans, how should I photograph them? For what reason? From what angle? Um, you know what I think? I think you're overthinking. Everybody says that to me. You and are. everyone's right. You're an artist. Create. That's your job. <laughs> if you don't create, you're not doing your job. And that is a that's a injustice for us, for the people that needs to be documented if you're not doing your job. Right? I don't know if you believe in God, but universe, whatever, whatever that thing is, that thing put you here to document this thing. That's your job. Do your job. Do you? Yes, I think, I think I got, I think I got over it. You know, Good. I mean, this discussion about authenticity and that being exploitative in photography, like it needed to happen, and it still needs to happen. Um, and maybe I kind of took it like a little too, too much, too hard in a sense, but, and mm. it's good. It's better to have it than not to have it, you know? Of course, of course. Because photography yeah. has like a terrible colonial, his, colonial history and it's not okay. Whatever is in your heart, it will come out to your photograph, right? People will understand. It's not what you say, so how you say it and like mean it from your heart, whatever you're trying to create. For me, that's what matters. You know, be authentic to yourself and if you're coming from kindness, kindness will come out. All right? Follow that heart. Anyways, I think we're there. Again, Olga, I really do appreciate this conversation. I learned so much. It was but it was fun. But before we close out, do you have any last remarks? Oh my god. Uh last remarks. Um last remarks. Okay, I just finished reading this wonderful book and I'm going to recommend it to to everyone. Uh, and this wonderful writer um whose name is William T. Bowman and the book is called Poor People. 
but he also wrote a lot of many other books like uh no good alternative and carbon ideologies and so everyone should go and read his books because they're fucking amazing i better be there in that book (laughs) because i was i mean i'm doing okay now but i was a poor person i mean we're talking about third world country poor but he did go to philippines actually he went all around the world i'll check it out i'll check it out again olga thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really do appreciate it thank you it was so much fun and i'm gonna i'm gonna come to montreal (laughs) be careful let me know (laughs) have a good night you too night bye bye again olga thank you for coming on the podcast i really do appreciate it thank you listeners for listening this is aaron deliosa from immigrants life I'll see you guys later.